The session today is case-based challenges in acute pain management. Um, today we have Deborah Gordon. She is the teaching assistant at University of Washington in Seattle, Washington. So please join me in welcoming her today. Thank you. Thank you. Would it bother you if I stay down here? I know we're kind of spread out, but um, just might be a little more. Okay, thank you. Well, thank you guys for getting up and coming to crack of dawn. I was just saying to David, maybe a lot of people are from the East Coast, and it's 10 o'clock. Yeah. Um, I'm just kind of curious who is in the room. Who is not a nurse? Okay. So physicians, PA, pharmacists. Okay. All right. So big spread group. Other therapists? And then some nursing. Okay, great, thanks. Um, well, as David said, I'm at um, Harborview Medical Center, which is the level one trauma center at the University of Washington. I'm actually the co-director now for Harborview's integrated pain care program. So um, although I was at the University of Wisconsin for close to 30 years and ran an inpatient acute pain service, now I do mostly program development and teaching and quality improvement. Uh, an expansion of our pain program, so we now have an interprofessional pain team that crosses from pre-anesthesia all the way back into primary care. So it's really looking about changing the way we've, you know, dealt with acute pain, but also that continuum across chronic pain. Um, I do have some disclosure. I do do some consulting work with Pacira. So what I'm going to talk about is just kind of some broad-based stuff about the challenges of acute pain. From assessment to treatment, uh, we're going to talk about kind of how do you think about a multimodal approach to acute pain, and then we're going to talk uh, a little about what do you do when pain is uncontrolled after you've taken the basic steps. Uh, later this morning, I'm going to talk specifically about how do you treat acute pain in patients with active substance use disorder. So there'll be a little overlap, but if, if you're interested in that population, I'll talk about that later. So um, I'm just kind of curious, what is it that you find most challenging about acute pain? Yeah, so he's, he's shared a lot, I think, and probably has most of our lists. Um, he's an anesthesiologist in a community hospital, seeing the same complexity that people see in tertiary care settings, and just trying to say, how do you, how do you deliver that in, in that kind of setting um, with either you know, not having all of the resources, but also, you know, multimodal analgesia, as this other lady said, uh, how do you individualize it, and really what is well-controlled pain? What is the expectation about how good that actually provides relief? Because it, as we all know, it doesn't completely el eliminate pain. Um, this is kind of my list that I've used for many years, um, and uh, this is probably about 10 sessions in uh, this week's programs from some of the basic science um, mechanisms to the clinical application. So we know that um, plasticity in the nervous system with acute pain occurs very rapidly. Within 20 minutes of injury, our nervous system can change both the way it functions and the way it's structured. Um, we know that e in some of the most vulnerable populations, I'm sorry, I keep turning my head. Um, you know, some of these Plastic changes occur in patients who are unconscious, anesthetized, sedated in the ICUs. Um, uh, the hospital that I work with uh, provides level one trauma for five states, and so we often have people 
transporting after trauma for many hours without, you know, full analgesia, and we kind of wonder what's happening during that time period. We've talked about how difficult it is to try and individualize multimodal analgesia. The timeline is certainly very short in acute pain. You often have to make changes very rapidly. You can't just try out a drug for uh, 24 or 48 hours. You might have to do three changes in 24 hours to really get on top of things. Safety is certainly a big concern. We know that high-dose opioids for many years causes this paradoxical opioid-induced hyperalgesia in some situations, even in opiate-naive. And uh, this, this last one, which is, I think, a huge issue for all of us, is how do we help this population who has chronic pain or had been on chronic opioids for many years? So let's start out with a case that's not too atypical for a lot of us. This is a 28-year-old opiate-naive female. She's a history of chronic pelvic pain and anxiety, and she underwent an exploratory laparotomy late yesterday. She was treated overnight with IVPCA morphine, a kind of a standard starting dose, a milligram with a lockout of six minutes. She's been reportedly maximizing its use. When we see her in the morning, she's awake, she's anxious, she's tolerating clear liquids, she's reporting severe pain, 10 out of 10. She's very unsatisfied with her pain control. On rounds, she's pleading for something stronger and states she, would, she was promised that she'd be pain-free. Have you seen this patient? So what more information do we need? Yes? Simple. I just want to know, I know it's chronic pelvic pain. What were they on before they came into the hospital? Exactly, right. Often a gap that we see in that whole workflow. What was she on prior to admission for her pain and her anxiety, and have we provided that? How about who told her she'd be pain-free? I mean, do we seriously think anybody in this day and age said that to her? I mean, honestly, did somebody say you'll be pain-free? Probably not. I mean, I, I, I'm an old nurse, and I worked in an era where people said that. Um, but I don't think that's said anymore, but I think people still hear it, right? We'll do everything we can. You won't have a lot of pain, blah, blah, blah. And it gets translated in the ear as, you told me I'd be pain-free. So the words we use matter uh, all the way through. Anything else? Yeah, huge. What does maximizing the use mean, right? How much has she consumed? You know, um, did she sleep? Uh, get, get a little more uh, assessment from the nurse. Yeah, lots of information. But you know what typically happens in the reality of the Russia clinical practice is this is what's happened, right? Somebody's come along during the night and said, "What's your pain?" Uh, on a zero to 10 scale. So I think this is a big challenge when we talk about acute pain and that's assessment. There's no question that the zero to 10 scale has a lot of um, practicality, that it can be helpful, but it's not the panacea of pain assessment. I always like to show this because um, this is some of the early literature that looked at mostly cancer pain, but also acute pain to show that there is a relationship between the number people give us and how that interferes with their function and quality of life. Um, you know, for the most part, when people have pain or one to two, it doesn't impact them really at all. Uh, people get to three or four, they can still function, but their mood and their overall quality of life might be a little dampened. And as you move up and up, you get more and more. So this has, I think, been helpful to establish cutoffs, right? 
One to four is considered mild pain, five to six moderate, and seven and above severe. And we certainly use severity in terms of deciding on treatment. If someone comes with mild pain, hopefully we're not starting with an opioid and vice versa. If you have severe pain, hopefully we're not just starting with acetaminophen or something. Um, the problem, though, is what is a clinically meaningful drop in acute pain on this scale? You know, about 10 years ago, there were a couple of papers that really looked at synthesis of analgesic trials, um, some of the rescue trials, and said, what is not just statistically meaningful, but what is a change in a 0 to 10 scale where patients will say, you know what, I got some relief. I don't need another dose. That drug performed well. Excuse me? 25%? If someone has a pain of 10 out of 10 and you give them a dose, or you have the nurse give them a dose and you come back, what would you want them, what would you think their pain would, what do you see them drop to? Six. Six to eight. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you don't usually see people go from 10 to 2 or 10 to 3. And, and that's what these studies really said. They said, well, it depends on where someone starts, but in general it's that kind of 33% change. Uh, and in general, that's usually only one to two points. So I always say to nurses I work with, you know, if someone's pain is 10 out of 10 and you give an uh, analgesic and you come back and they say it's 8, you don't necessarily say, wow, great, we've got statistically and clinically meaningful pain relief. This is fantastic. You're doing great. But on the other hand, out of the side of my mouth, I say you, you should really praise the patient, that that is relief. Um, that's, that's kind of about as good as it gets. Uh, a big pet peeve of mine, I don't know about you, is this breakthrough pain uh, with acute pain. People are saying, well, they need a breakthrough dose. Uh, breakthrough pain is a whole other lecture, I think, and I think it's relevant to chronic pain and to cancer pain. I'm not so sure it really applies to acute pain. With acute pain, pain with movement is normal. Right? It's evoked pain. And I think we have to change the language because patients get really caught up in this, I need my breakthrough dose. I'm like, what do you, you need a dose prior to your physical therapy or you need to time your dose around activity, but it's okay. It's normal to hurt a little more when you get up and you don't have to chase that every time you move. So this is one of my favorite um, studies. Again, it's older. It's from 2001, I think. Um, but it very nicely articulates the struggle we have, the challenge of using 0 to 10 uh, in acute pain. Um, this was a very well done study talking to people about how, it, how is it that they pick that number on a 0 to 10 scale when they have pain. And these patients said, well, it's complicated. It's a lot of internal and external factors. But in the end, what the authors concluded is that a 0 to 10 pain intensity rating is not that discrete sensory phenomena the way we present it or the way we think about it. We think about it as severity. What these patients said is, um, really what that is is what that pain means to me in this moment of time and how I think you're going to respond. So when someone says their pain is 15 or 20 out of 10, I've heard other people say that is really somebody shouting at us, right? Help. 
Do you believe me? So, uh, you know, put it in the context. And I think sometimes after the first kind of zero to ten, uh, it's nice to kind of drop it and just say, are you better, worse, or the same, and, and move on and not focus too much, especially if someone hasn't had less than seven out of ten in 20 years. It's, it very much doesn't function well in acute pain. So, again, I think uh, pain assessment is the cornerstone for all pain and certainly a big challenge in acute pain. I think with acute pain, we tend to focus on this sensory aspect where is it, what does it feel like, and how severe it is, and sometimes don't have the time or really the tools to really look at that kind of uh, psychosocial aspect of that entire complex experience. You know, who is that guy behind that leg in the ED stretcher who may have, you know, been involved in a drunk driving accident, may have killed someone, may not be able to save that leg over the next year, all of those things about what that pain experience means to that person and, and how we respond to that. Um, a lot of people have mnemonics. I'm sure you guys all have one. I kind of like this kiss tape one. This is something that um, I worked with uh, Misha Bachkonia, who works with Charles Argoff, who I think Charles is speaking every day uh, at this week, um, to just think about when I have someone in front of me with even acute pain to think, kiss tape, kiss tape, kiss tape. Do I ask all of these questions? Um, what does it feel like? How does it impact you? Where is it exactly? Is this your chronic pelvic pain or is this, you know, pain from being intubated last night? Um, you know, past treatment, what makes it better? What makes it worse? Is it, you know, muscle pain? Is it referred pain? All of these things include, including expectations and meaning. Uh, a lot of times, you know, we also want to try and figure out is there some neuropathy going on that's unexpected or some kind of complication. So a lot of people always say, well, if it's burning, it must be neuropathic, but that's not really so true. I mean, a lot of acute pain burns, so you really have to do a little more uh, examination to look for some of the other signs and symptoms. Um, this is certainly a referral pattern for visceral pain. A lot of folks that have abdominal operations might have diaphragmatic irritation, might have pain in the shoulder, and so, you know, what are we chasing? Are we chasing positioning in the OR? Is that referred pain, or is that kind of chronic muscular pain? And the response to that may not be more PCA. It might be, you know, something completely different. So uh, assessment is critical. Um, again, this is another uh, mnemonic or, or kind of way to think about pain assessment, and that is to kind of, kind of classify people globally. Um, for example, I think if you have a, um, say this patient we just talked about, relatively young, healthy female without a lot of organ problems, and she's got really poor coping, um, but she's got pretty... <laughs> simplistic, if you will, acute pain, there's no neuropathy, there's no infection going on. We might treat her very differently if we scale that and really focus in on her psychological coping, maybe be able to give her, um, you know, more heavy-duty NSAIDs than somebody who's perhaps uh, 85 who's got acute zoster, um, you know, that has very good coping skills. So I, I like this to try and kind of put it in the context of the whole situation that you're in. Uh, one of the great health psychologists I worked with many years ago um, said to me, you know, when people are in a trauma, especially young adults, they tend to regress about 10 years in their coping skills. And I thought, aha, that makes perfect sense when you're taking care of like a 25, 30-year-old even that's been in a trauma or a big unexpected surgical insult first time in the hospital in their life, and they're acting like a 12-year-old, right? 
there's teddy bears in the bed, they can't really, they're crying. I mean, it's just like, what, what's going on? And I, it really helps me, I think, to kind of put into that about where is that patient in terms of their psychological coping ability. I don't know if you saw this. I really like this. This was presented last year at uh, the American Society for Pain Management Nursing. This is a, a tool that was developed at the University of Utah by Gary Donaldson and Dick Chapman. Um, it's not a pain assessment tool per se. You don't score it. You don't give it to the patient. But it's a tool to guide your discussion with the patient, to have kind of a natural discussion with the patient. Uh, both the acute pain service at the University of Washington and at Harborview, um, which is one of our hospitals where I work, um, the acute pain services have put this into their daily progress note. So you, you go into the room and you have a normal conversation. You say, how are you doing? Are you comfortable? Has there been a change in your pain? Is it better, worse, or the same? Um, do you think your pain control is adequate or not? And if it's not, why not? What, what's it interfering with? What can't you do that you're supposed to be doing here in the hospital? And then are, are you sleeping? Um, so you can go online. Uh, there's a little video at the University of Utah's website on this. Uh, I, I published a little um, opinion on pain assessment in current opinion of anesthesiology. If you want, I'd like get the tool that's actually in there uh, to see it. But I think this is a much nicer way for us to talk about pain assessment and then to, do to document it even. This is just another case. This was a consultation I had um, a couple of years ago of a lady similar to the case I just presented, only this was an older woman who'd had an abdominal hysterectomy and I had an acute pain consult. And sometimes I use pain diagrams to try and get a sense of you know, what is it that's the problem? Because there's very nice um, data I think you can get from what body part the patient colors and what colors they use to try and see if there's neuropathic pain. But this is abdominal surgery, right? I did not write that in there. She, write, she wrote, starts here over her spine. You know, this was a lady who they were having a hard time mobilizing, getting well-controlled pain. Um, she was so irritated because no one would bring her coffee that she got out of bed and walked down to the nurse's station to get her cup of coffee. Um, so clearly she's got a lot of stuff going on here that was, you know, she's got, looks like some neuropathy in her hands. She's got, um, you know, diabetic neuropathy in her feet, all kinds of uh, pain problems. So what pain are we really taking care of and what's the problem? So let's go on a little more with this case. Um, she got a one-time order for IV Ketorolac. Um, orders were written to use oral analgesia. She was tolerating clear liquids, so she has 5 to 20 a PRN oxycodone every three hours and to discontinue her IVPCA. So just think about these kind of questions. Do you give this lady a bolus of IVPCA at the time that you put her on oral, or do your nurses do that? Is there ever a role to give both parenteral and oral at the same time. Yeah, so this, this physician said that they um, start orals as soon as possible and uh, may use IV PCA overnight with that for some rescue medicine and then um, translate or transition it in the morning based on how much PCA they use, whether they need a little more oral or not. Yeah, so they order the um, orals around the clock scheduled, not PRN. Uh, you know, and that's a debatable, uh, uh, interesting thing to, to talk about. Um, 
We know that when uh, analgesics are often ordered PRN, nurses often don't give them, right, um, for lots of reasons. And so this is a prompt to have the nurse go in. On the other hand, uh, you sometimes have a situation where a nurse might administer it without a proper assessment and, and might over-sedate the patient. I can tell you as the um, recent co-chair for the American Pain Society and American Society of Anesthesiologists Acute Pain Guideline, which was published this spring in the Journal of Pain, um, the recommendation is really to use oral analgesia for acute pain right out of the chute and only use IV if it's really indicated or necessary. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, yeah, so certainly there are times when it might make sense to give both at the same time, but it's very confusing and we don't want to be duplicating and giving two, three, four different opioids and having, you know, one peak at the wrong time. And um, we have a lot of problems sometimes now with... Um, bolusing peripheral nerve catheters. You know, it takes 30 minutes for that local anesthetic to gain control, and so nurses will start giving IV bolusing at the same time that they give a local anesthetic bolus, and then by the time the local anesthetic bolus kicks in, your IV is peaking, and we've had a number of respiratory depression cases. So people really have to get a sense of what's the right order and kind of how to do this. Um, what about the initial uh, dose of oxycodone for this lady? Remember, she's opiate-naive. She's, let's assume that she's been using, you know, her full amount of morphine PCA overnight. What dose of oxycodone would you start? Or do you even have guidance in your policies or your education for the nurse to know which dose to give? That's a big uh, controversy. Is that asking the nurse to practice outside her scope? Um, that's come up a lot with the Joint Commission and the, and the range order policies and stuff. Um, I can tell you when I was in Wisconsin, we ended up going all the way to the uh, attorney for the nursing association. And her, um, I'm lost for words, uh, her verdict on it was that this is a delegated physician order to a nurse, and the nurse has the ability to make the judgment on, in terms of how to do that based on our scope of professional practice. So it's, it's very legal to have a range order. We do that. We have done that forever, and nurses have to make critical decisions all the time. The thing is, is that I think uh, if you got five nurses or ten nurses in the room, you'd probably get a little different answer. So uh, this is a really muddy area. It's a, it's a challenge. Um, you know, IVPCA2, I think, is a bit overused. It's not that black box. Uh, I remember in 1992, when the very first national guideline came out for acute pain, there was a meta-analysis looking at conventional PRN intramuscular dosing to PCA and really showed no benefit over IVPCA except for convenience to the patient and the nurse. In fact, there was really very little difference in the total amount of opioid that was used. There was probably a little more itching and side effects with the PCA, but really not much better pain control. If you look at this, they showed um, a mean improvement of 5.6, but that was on a 100-point visual analog scale. So I don't know that 5 out of 100 is really uh, robust pain relief. And again, as mentioned, there's been some um, more recent Cochrane reviews and the national guidelines really say that PCA should be reserved only when people need parenteral for a prolonged period of time. This is some of the stuff you were talking about. I'm sorry, I'll quit jumping around so much. Um, where with the American Society of Pain Management Nurses and the American Pain Society, we've tried to get together to say that 
Uh, Ranged doses are absolutely necessary and needed, but they are very much a source of confusion, and this is something that we have to really educate ourselves and our colleagues about, um, and really um, not have a lot of muddiness, that if nurses are confused about which dose to give or or that the nurse thinks that patient needs a lower dose than what's ordered, that they need to call the physician, and that you need to have a discussion about what's the appropriate dose for this patient. Um, we've also talked about the challenge of respiratory depression. This particular patient, I know we didn't spend a lot of time on her, but she um, doesn't have a lot of um, flagrant risk factors for respiratory depression, but, you know, all patients are at risk. Uh, the risk may be greater uh, as we give higher doses. Probably the incidence is higher than what's reported or what we're seeing in our patient safety net or naloxone events, and certainly the incidence in clinical practice is higher than what you'll see in clinical trials. So uh, very much an issue that uh, we all have to attend to. And there's been a lot of national guidance about opioid safety in hospitals. This one at the top, the CMS sent a memo to all state uh, medical directors, I think uh, about a year ago, and said that uh, specifically nurses should be instructed on what are the risk factors for respiratory depression. Nurses should tell patients that they may need to wake them up in the middle of the night to check on them for their safety and explain how they're going to be monitoring them. Um, And that's a very direct statement about telling patients about the risk of opioid safety. Um, here's just that list of uh, respiratory depression that, um, you know, we put, put on little badge cards for the nurses to carry around. But the thing that I get uh, kind of a kick out of, if you will, is that very first bullet. So you're at risk if you are opiate naive or if you're opioid tolerant, right? It's kind of like who doesn't fit that characteristic. So really, although there are some, you know, people with pulmonary disease or clearance, you know, clearance problems are at greater risk, older age, Um, I don't know, maybe this patient we're taking care of is a smoker. Maybe she does have risk factors that I don't know of. Um, Also, you know, we give a lot of other sedating drugs in the hospital and certainly in acute pain. This is the percentage of patients experiencing somnolence or sedation. So we've got antihistamines, antiemetics, lots of muscle relaxants people tend to use, which I always think is kind of interesting. Um, you know, if you've had an abdominal operation, are you going to have some muscle spasm in the first 24 hours? Well, yeah, probably, but does that really need a muscle relaxant, a centrally acting muscle relaxant on top of your other drugs, or does that really compound your risk of respiratory depression? I think we just have to be a little careful. Um, this is a slide I borrowed from Chris Becerra because it really struck me as a very uh, good warning sign, and that is this issue of snoring. You know, patients' families will always say, well, yeah, he snores at home all the time. That's not a problem, you know, or I'm a snorer all the time. The thing is, is that when you're at home and you're snoring, you probably self-arouse, right? Your oxygen drops, you wake yourself up. It's a little different when you're in the hospital and you're snoring. You know, you've got other agents on board, so you're not probably quite so easy to self-aroused. So when people are snoring in the hospital, you know, it's a, it's a big issue, I think, in terms of talking to nurses about somebody's maybe getting into trouble if they're snoring. Certainly, people are falling asleep in the middle of a conversation. Don't you? I mean, I don't, I'm not trying to make fun of patients, but, you know, you'll talk to someone and they'll be um, saying, yeah, my pain is... Deb will wake up. Oh, oh yeah. Oh, yeah, that my... My roommate was really noisy. 
last night. It's like, okay, I've been really sleepy, tired, because I've been up all night, but I don't fall asleep in the middle of a sentence. If you're falling asleep, you can't have one sentence with me. There's trouble. That's not normal sleepiness. So, again, I think um, we sometimes see that. We just keep going along. But that, that's something we really have to be careful about. All right, so let's go back to our case. Um, let's wind it back quite a bit before her surgery. So let's assume now we see her for the first time, a 28-year-old opiate naive female with a history of chronic pelvic pain and anxiety scheduled to go. What would our discussion be now with her? What would we tell her what to expect about pain? What would we have maybe done differently than just IVPCA, multimodal, maybe through the phases of care? And could we have offered her some non-pharmacologic strategies? Some Neurontin, some Gabapentin, yes. Again, recommended as uh, for all adult major operations, a preoperative dose of Gabapentin is probably worth uh, considering, and that's recommended in the national guidelines now. Uh, the dosing is, doesn't have to be low. The dosing should be analgesic. And so the guideline is going to recommend 600 to 1,200 as a single pre-op dose of gabapentin. I've never seen uh, any data for analgesia in low-dose gabapentin. I know a lot of people in the hospital will start 100 or 300 milligrams, but uh, you can't kill someone on gabapentin. You can't overdose. So why not give a dose that you know is at least in the therapeutic range? And again... Um, she's worried about hallucinations with gabapentin and anesthesia. I don't know that I've ever seen any evidence of that. Um, I, this is a big controversy about, um, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't want to take those side effects lightheartedly and in an individual patient. I think anything is possible. But I know um, my, my, um, we had a lot of complaints of everything from VTAC to your car is broke from gabapentin. It seemed like when we first started to introduce it, it's like, yes, people are going to be a little sleepy in the, in the PACU, but um, there's other things that are at play often when someone has got unusual side effects. Yes? Yeah, so right. So turn it around and ask her what her expectation is, because it is a huge gamut of what people expect. You know, this is going to cure my chronic pain. This is going to take my, give me my life back. Versus, you know, maybe it's just a diagnostic operation or, or whatnot. So lots of things in terms of the whole workflow, in terms of how to get together, how to have a plan of care that can be started preoperatively and carried through and communicated to everyone taking care of her. Did you want to say? Oh, I was going to mention scheduled acetaminophen as an yeah. adjuvant. Yeah, yeah. So scheduled acetaminophen, maybe some pre-op gabapentin, some oral analgesia, non-pharmacologic. One of the things uh, we're working with now is to try and do more um, behavioral health screening in our pre-anesthesia clinic. So if people come in and they're very anxious, they're catastrophizing, our health psychologists can perhaps work with them preoperatively, give them some skills, um, do some biofeedback so that patients are better prepared to go into surgery. Yes? 
Yeah, I think um, um, setting expectations is critical. Howard Fields gave a great plenary earlier this year at the American Pain Society and really showed how robust uh, the expectation effect is physiologically. It's really quite incredible how the brain learns and how important words are. We've done a lot of work at our institution as well, like many have, to really script this. And you'll notice this is our script that we give to patients. It doesn't have a zero to 10 number in it at all. It really talks about functional goals. The well-controlled pain means your pain uh, is controlled, it stays out of the severe range, um, that you're able to function and sleep, and we'll work closely to keep it tolerable. So again, having that consistent message is really critical. And I think this is a huge intervention in and of itself. This is again, kind of a wordy slide. It just shows the contrast between goals for chronic pain and acute pain are not that far apart, right? It's to prevent secondary problems developing. It's to really um, increase recovery and quality of life uh, and to minimize pharmacologic side effects, and so really kind of balance, balance it and be, ex and be realistic about expectations. You've all seen this cartoon a million times. Again, very complex, all of the potential options for combining pharmacologic methods as well as non-pharmacologic methods, and I'll go over just a couple of these. But there really isn't any super clear guidance. There's not a lot of good clinical trials combining different medications. And as we know, we've said this several times this morning, it's individual, individual, individual. This is, this is really an art and a science. Um, there's probably six or eight stellar national, international acute pain guidelines over the last 10 or 15 years. Every one of them says that every patient who undergoes an operation should have an NSAID unless it's contraindicated. I think if you look at your populations, you probably only have about 10 or 12 percent or less that are actually on NSAIDs. Um, maybe there's good reasons for that. Maybe there's not. Certainly, there's a lot of concern. I mean, these are dangerous drugs given to the wrong patient. It's not something you want to give to a dehydrated 85-year-old out of the OR um, because you're worried about respiratory depression and then end up with a renal failure problem. We know that they're contraindicated in coronary artery bypass surgery. We know that there's observational data to show that high-dose opioid, or excuse me, high-dose NSAIDs can inhibit um, certain types of bone healing. Um, there's certainly some studies in the last couple years which question the risk of an asthmatic leak in some colorectal surgery. I was just at an American Society of Enhanced Recovery consensus group this spring with a lot of colorectal surgeons. They were like, yeah, we're not concerned about that. That's not going to be something we're going to take out of recommending as part of an enhanced recovery. Um, when we looked at this with the American Pain Society guidelines, the evidence really is not that uh, overwhelming to really say that you absolutely should not use NSAIDs in any of these patients. It's really, again, um, trying to look at the risk-benefit in that individual patient. Um, we've talked about gabapentin and pregabalin perioperatively. Again, a wealth of evidence, over 43 randomized controlled trials and multiple systematic reviews showing that this, these drugs do have a role in acute pain analgesia. It looks like the robust evidence is in what they call these pro-nociceptive models, and that's spine surgery, orthopedic, arthroplasty, uh, and amputations. Just a single dose preoperatively has shown some opioid sparing effect and actually can reduce nausea and vomiting as well. 
If you look at the side effects, it's not respiratory depression. It's sedation. It's mental fogginess. It's, again, not kind of that life-threatening type of side effects. It looks to me, um, again, the American Pain Society, I think, recommends 1,200, and that's what I, we're using in both hospitals I worked at at Wisconsin and here for a preoperative dose. But there's a nice disc, discectomy dose-defining study that showed that um, dropping below 600 for a preoperative dose really didn't seem to have any effect. So at least 600 is probably recommended. And for pregabalin, we're not quite sure, probably 150. We put gabapentin in the water when I was at the University of Wisconsin, the University of Washington. We put ketamine in the water. Um, everybody gets ketamine, it seems. Uh, you know, um, again, a very nice option perioperatively as part of a multimodal analgesic regimen. If you look at the analgesic sparing effect of morphine, though, 5 to 20 milligrams morphine. I don't know if that's oral or IV parenteral dosing in 24 hours, but it's not like this huge thing. It's not like you can't, you don't, you can't use op or you should not use opioids. It just um, provides perhaps some additional analgesia and maybe kind of helps dampen that uh, wind-up that's occurring. You know, a lot of concern about the psychomimetic effects. You've probably all seen patients get uh, kind of goofy on this, nightmares, hallucinations, but again, not, not life-threatening at these lower doses. Um, the issue of whether you have resources to provide a regional approach. Uh, this woman had an abdominal exploratory laparotomy. I mean, I love local anesthetic. If you're operating on my tummy, I'm going to ask you to put an epidural catheter in unless there's a problem with it. But again, there might be problems with, uh, you know, whether you have the resources to do this, uh, the si potential side effects um, of, you know, if it's a lower surgery, can you get a catheter that then, you know, doesn't affect the bladder and, you know, someone's ability to ambulate right away. Um, she, on the other hand, might have been a very good um, candidate for IV lidocaine infusions. Um, this is something that's really relatively easy to do and can be very safe. Um, the nice thing about the data on IV lidocaine is that it looks like it actually inhibits some of that stress response. You get a uh, attenuation of the pro-inflammatory mediators. You get significant decreases in pain, but also in that paralytic ileus. You, know, you get earlier return of bowel function. Um, so very nice. As long as someone doesn't have a conduction block problem, most people can tolerate um, IV lidocaine if they can't have an epidural. What about the non-pharmacologic strategies? I always say there's two buckets that we should pull from, and we should always consider pulling just like we do with the analgesics different mechanisms of action. So we have the cognitive behavioral strategies, which are things that can help the mind change the perception of pain, whether that's music, distraction, um, education, uh, combined with the physical strategies. Can we use ice, positioning, sometimes movement? Um, we were doing a study with our major spine surgeries uh, and asking patients about how much pain they had at rest and with movement. And I was really kind of shocked. These are like eight-level spine surgeries. People said they actually felt, had less pain when they were up walking than they did when they were laying in bed, which I guess when I say it out loud, it doesn't make, make sense to me. But, you know, you think that movement would not be something that would help with pain, but it actually helps people sometimes to get up and move around. So cognitive modalities, again, this is just a little summary slide. There's hundreds of studies. Um, it's hard to find really 
um, powered studies. This isn't something that you often can get funding for, but you don't have to be a health psychologist. Again, just using the, the right words, um, simple coaching, simple um, reassurance to people, um, using imagery distraction. We have, um, like many hospitals, implemented trans-electrical nerve stimulators on all of our inpatient units. I was actually shocked. This was the one thing that came out of the APS acute pain guidelines, is that there is over 40-some really well-done randomized controlled trials showing uh, TENS is helpful for incisional pain, not for chronic pain, but for incisional pain. And um, you use it kind of as a PRN intervention with activity. So it's put on for 30 to 60 minutes, used when the patient is doing physical therapy or up ambulating. And the data looks almost like giving an NSAID with an opioid. You get a pooled reduction of 36% opioid use. Um, again, not a lot of side effects from a TENS unit. And a lot of patients are familiar with this. And most TENS units have two channels. So I will often say, well, if you've got chronic back pain, we'll put it on your chronic back pain, and then we'll put it on your incision at the same time. And so you can sometimes treat two pains at one time. All right, so 12 hours later, um, she's still reporting suboptimal pain control. She's tolerating an oral diet. She's received several of the 20 milligrams at the top of our range of oxycodone. And somebody gave her some PRN acetaminophen. So now what do we do? So again, looking for complications, what's going on? Does she have an ileus? Is this, is this still her surgical pain or maybe her chronic pain? Or yeah, what, why, why, why isn't she responded? Or what else could we have done? Yeah, another adjunct. Mm -hmm. Yep. Lots of opportunity here, right? Schedule the Tylenol, go up on the Tylenol, add something for her anxiety. What about non-pharmacologic? Yes. Chronic pelvic pain. Yeah, hey, they use a lot of lidoderm patches at the hospital I'm at right now around incisions and chest tubes, and I don't know. I, I mean, I, I really would question the mechanism of how that, that particular product works and the mechanism of pain, and um, I don't know. I think there are some other things I might try first. Music, yeah. Get on your cell phone, music, have some company, yeah. Give her some reassurance counseling. So these are the questions that I think we have to ask when someone's pain is not well controlled. I always step back and say, uh, do we have this person on the right analgesics? Emphasis with S. Is this the right balanced multimodal analgesic plan for this type of operation? You know, did she get a local anesthetic? Did she get an NSAID? Um, you're right, she just got one dose of PRN Ketorolac. Maybe she needs scheduled ibuprofen for a few days. Are we giving her the right route? Because a lot of people are on this IV stuff, which is very short-acting, and then they're going up and down and up and down and up and down, and people really should be on the oral route. Um, is this the right dose for this patient? There's an extreme variation in the amount that people need, and have we appropriately titrated her on all of her medications? Um, is this the right timing? You'll often see surgical patients complain of poorly controlled pain, and it's really, when you talk to them, it's that 
they had a bad physical therapy session because the medication came after, or the nurses are using topical lidocaine on their wound dressing and they didn't wait 10 minutes for it to work. Um, so it might be a timing of when the dose is worth giving. And I think really importantly, as we've said a number of times, did we give this patient the right message about what is realistic and possible to achieve and what are our goals versus what are her goals? Uh, one of the anesthesiologists at the University of Washington worked on this. Um, we actually had, um, he was very frustrated because a lot of the surgery residents would call and say exactly what we started out with this case. This patient's maximizing their PCA use, what do I do? And they didn't have a clue how much morphine the patient had had. They just heard from a nurse the patient was in poorly controlled pain and maximizing the PCA, and they didn't have a clue of what to do. So we developed one of those little pocket guides, cards, for them to put in their lab coat, <clears throat> although they don't. Hopefully people aren't wearing too many lab coats these days anymore, but um, it's really to say, okay, if someone is tolerating the oral route, here's what you do. You don't just jump back to IV. You know, step back a little and think about scheduling that grandma Tylenol, adding some ibuprofen, maybe giving a couple of doses of IV Ketorolac to try and get things controlled, adding the gabapentin, um, titrate the opioid by 50%, and then maybe consider a pain consultation. Yes, sir. Yeah, so he's saying it's important probably to educate nurses about how they do that assessment about administering an opioid when someone's on gabapentin or they've had a higher dose of gabapentin and they might have some, some of those um, somnolence, sedation side effects and, and how to do that. And he's saying that he seems like pregabalin is less sedating uh, postoperatively. I don't know. We, just, we were just trying to work out a um, comparison for the providers where I am about what really is the difference between gabapentin and pregabalin and which one they should use first and stuff. And it's so difficult with these drugs and with an individual patient because, you know, you just, you don't know. And this is the stepwise approach for IV. If this is a person who does have an ileus or is an NPO and you can't start the oral regimen, um, again, we really try and coach our residents and nurses that IV should really be reserved for people who need it. Um, when rapid relief is needed for severe pain or there's a specific indication like a dressing change where the timing is such that preneral is really needed. Otherwise, oral is really the preferred route. Um, you may schedule Ketorolac. You may give a time-limited rescue bolus for like 6, 12 hours to try and get things. Or you might just go back and use PCA for a little bit. Um, and then again, here's some dosing in terms of, you know, stepping it up 50%. This is probably the case that um, we'll talk a little more about this kind of case later this morning, but this is probably the more challenging case for all of us. And that's a 56-year-old overweight male on high-dose opioids, including methadone, 80 milligrams daily for a remote history of substance use disorder. He's scheduled for back surgery because of radiculopathy, and he's very anxious about his pain control, which you can't blame him. He's probably had a lot of bad experiences. Um, and is requesting lorazepam perioperatively. So a whole different gamut in terms of risk factors for uh, respiratory depression. Um, when people are opioid tolerant, there are some general principles to follow. There's very little evidence that it's going to help us or that patient to try and reduce this opioid doses prior to surgery. You're probably not going to be able to treat that tolerance. You're just going to have an anxious a uh, patient in pain who's probably going to be trying to take medication without you knowing anyway. 
Um, there's some thought to use a different opioid perioperatively, but certainly um, really expectations, patient engagement, a multimodal approach is, and really a team approach to a patient like this is really important. This is probably the preoperative, perioperative pain management plan that I, we would suggest uh, for a patient like that. Again, a lot of this scheduled pre-op dosing the morning of, continuing the methadone through the operation, maybe using PCA to give him some control uh, and let him be able to um, not have to, like, try and negotiate with nurses who might have varying levels of suspicions and concerns about giving high-dose opioids to someone with substance use disorder. But then very much a discharge taper plan, too. This is a guy who's going to need probably help and very much a structured plan about reducing his acute opioids. So remember, um, develop a plan with all patients to taper and stop opioids. Um, I think we've done a lot in the last 10 or 15 years about the challenges of patients coming to us, but now it's a lot more that we need to do in terms of that transition out of the hospital and back to home in terms of opioid safety. A lot of confusing messages. You know, the CDC guidelines say acute pain, two to three days of opioids, rarely more than seven, but that does not refer to surgical pain. In the CDC guidelines, they refer back to the Washington Agency Medical for Directors Guidelines group, um, which um, I've got a website, or you can just Google it. And we really, those guidelines suggest uh, patients should not be discharged home with more than two weeks, and you should use the lowest dose at the smallest duration of time. But most people should probably be off opioids within four to six weeks. So I think there's a lot we have to do in terms of where we work, in terms of how we work together, how we change the workflow um, in terms of coordinating care and service across. I'll just leave you with um, a slide with a couple of references. Um, the APS guidelines I've mentioned several times. These are the Washington State uh, Interagency Guidelines for Prescribing Opioids. And then the Society for Hospital Medicine has developed a couple of nice references for you in terms of managing uh, pain in the hospital. So thanks for your patience. Sorry we went over a little late.